0: Toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. You know, most of us avoid thinking about death unless we're we're forced to. And some of the times we're forced to are when a loved one passes, or if we're given a diagnosis of a of a terminal illness. Then those are the times we're forced to. But but actually there are certain situations where death is actually necessary in order to bring life. And so one example of that is is something that a number of people in our church family are dealing with, cancer. What's happening, I I called one precious person who's dealing with that right now because they've been in the midst of this now for for months because I wanted to clarify and be sure I had these details right. What's happening in chemotherapy or in radiation is actually killing off the cells that are killing them. So they're killing off, the chemotherapy is kind of the broad range. It's like going throughout the body and just targeting any kind of fast-growing cells. And radiation is zeroing in on a particular area when we know that it's it's isolated to that area. We're killing off the things that are killing those people. So let me, I I need to ask you all a question. Most of us, Lord willing, are not dealing with cancer right now, but I I need to ask all of us a serious question. Question this morning, what is it in your life right now that is choking your life? What in your life is choking off your your life? What what in you needs to be put to death so that you can actually live? It might be a compulsion that you have, a compulsive habit that, that leads to shame. It might be an emotional reaction that you have, that you're you're triggered in certain situations, and when you're triggered that way, it pushes people away from you, and you've tried to change that habit, just have not been able to do that. Could be a thought pattern that you have that that leads, it kind of always is kind of a downward spiral into despair. What is that thing in, in your life It's it's choking out your your life. It probably feels so ingrained in you, it almost feels like an appendage. And it feels like I I can't even really picture or imagine my life without this. But I wanna ask you to attempt to do just just that for, for just a moment. So whatever comes to your mind when you think about a habit or a thought pattern or whatever it is that's choking life out of you. I want you to imagine yourself for a moment without that habit or that thought pattern. What kind of freedom would you experience? What kind of relationship harmony could you experience if that wasn't there? If you did that little exercise with me, then what you just got was a glimpse of Romans one seventeen, if, if you're new with us, Romans 1.17 is the core text for the whole book of Romans, and we haven't reviewed this in a while, so for those of you who have been around, I want you to fill in the blanks for me here. The one who by is shall. All right, good job. The one who by faith is righteous, right with God, Shall live. The one who by faith is right with God. Not the one who by your efforts or your performance is right with God. It's the one who by faith in Christ is right with God shall live. And so life sounds really good. That's what this whole section of Romans is about that we're moving into. Life sounds really good, but life can't happen until some things die. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. That's what Romans 6 is all about. If you would turn there with me. That's where we're gonna be. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there is one on a seat close to you. Romans 6 is on page 1043. Really helpful for you to follow along with, with what we're reading here. Last week, we looked at the scourge of death and we looked at the source of death in the world. Chapter five, verse 12 tells us the source of of death. It says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men and women, all people, because all sinned. That's, That's bad news. Death is a scourge that no one escapes. Nothing escapes in creation, but God offers a solution. And we saw that last week in verse 20 that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace superabounds. Gr- the grace of Christ is greater than all of our sin. Not just any of our sin, all of our sin, all the cumulative sin of all of humanity. Christ's grace is greater. It's like a tidal wave washing away the sandcastles. Of our sin. So last week, we looked at death on a global scale. Today, Paul begins to get very personal about that. And he starts with a question at the beginning of chapter six that follows naturally from verse 20 last week where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So he starts with this question in verse one What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If if more sin means more grace, then shouldn't we sin more? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Because then God gets to do his grace thing more and then he, he looks good. It's a similar question that we saw several months ago, if you were here in Romans chapter three, verses seven and eight, we'll put this on the screen. If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Some people are slanderously saying that. Their condemnation is just. The argument is, the worse I behave, the better God looks. The worse I behave then when God comes in with his grace, like, that that's... Giving God glory, so why wouldn't I want to keep sinning? So why wouldn't I just keep gossiping? God, God's gonna forgive that. It's not that, it's not that big of a deal. Why why not give in to my addiction to pornography? I mean, God's grace has a chance to wash over me and, and make me clean after I give in to that. I, I don't really need to give attention to my pride. I mean, God is gonna forgive that anyway. Shouldn't we sin more so that we do our sin thing and then God does his grace thing and then he looks good? Shouldn't we just do more of it? And Paul answers forcefully in verse two, by no means. It's the Greek phrase, we saw it before, "meganoito." It's the strongest possible refutation. Absolutely not. It shows up 10 times in in the book of of Romans, answers to these imaginary questions. And so now he's gonna explain why. Absolutely not, that's not the way. We're not going there, and here's why. In verse two. How can we who died to sin Still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See, when, we, when you and I are made right with God by faith, and Paul's word for that is justification, when we're made right with God by faith, something happens that is more radical than the forgiveness of your sins. It includes the forgiveness of your sins, but it is way more radical than the forgiveness of your sins. It is actually the giving of a new nature at the core of who we are. We are being remade and we actually die to sin. Our old self dies so that the new self can come to life. See, in Christ, we are not dead in sin, we are dead to sin, in Christ. See, in Adam, we talked about this last week, in Adam, we are dead in sin. So if we stand in line behind Adam, if you are here last week, we had a picture up on the screen standing in line behind Adam, then we're dead in sin. But when we change lines and get behind Jesus, when we are in Christ, then we are dead to sin, and so, because of Adam, we saw last week, because of Adam, we are born dead in sin. That's, that's the phrase, original sin. Original sin isn't talking about the first sin in the garden eating of the fruit. Original sin means that you and I, from our origin, original sin, from our origin, we are predisposed to sin. And so we saw that last week in verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned in all people through that one man. Ephesians describes this in really sad terms. Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the sorry state that we are born into, but the good news of the gospel is this. In Christ, we are not dead in sin, but we are dead to sin. Paul's going to go on to describe what being dead to sin looks like. But before we do that, I want to just underscore the reality that being becoming a follower of Jesus is not does not mean that you are signing up for a religion. It does not mean that you say I think I'll decide to to do Christianity. So I'll just I'll go to church Deciding to follow Christ means that the core of us changes because the original sin that we are born with has to be reversed. Someone has to reverse that, and it has to be somebody outside of ourselves because we can't do it for ourselves. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to patch broken people. He came to raise dead people. So when you and I come to him with our, our scars and our, our bumps and our bruises and we ask him, Jesus, would you fix this for me? And we think that that's what he's all about. Then we are missing the whole point because we need to come to him and say, Jesus, apart from you, I am dead and I need you to raise me to life. Baptism is a beautiful picture of this. Did, did you catch that he mentioned baptism here in verse 3? Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus are baptized into his death? Baptism is this beautiful picture. Jeremy mentioned it, and we're going to see more of those next week. Baptism, and, and I want to just, under, every time we talk about baptism, we, we want to mention the fact, please understand that baptism itself does not, is not part of your salvation, You don't have to be baptized to be a follower of Jesus because being right with God is about faith in Christ plus nothing. You and I don't contribute anything to it. But the baptism is a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done inside of us. And it's a beautiful picture in three ways. One is that it it pictures dying to an old life and then rising to I, dying to an old life, is that what I said? And and rising to a new life. It also, secondly, pictures being cleansed. You know, we get in water to, to get clean. Hopefully, hopefully, all of us get into water to get clean and we come out and we're cleaner than we were when we went in. And so it's a picture of that. But there's another picture here in Romans 6 that baptism symbolizes. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus, being baptized, we are included into Christ Jesus. It's the idea that we are like covered by him. It's like we're absorbed into Christ Jesus. We are absorbed, he says, Paul tells us, into his death and into his burial, and then into his life. That's what he says in verse four. We were buried with him by baptism into death. So please understand, this baptism that it's talking about here, this is not less than water baptism, but it's more than water baptism. There's a bigger whole life picture that's going on here. We were buried with him by baptism into death. And so when we envision Jesus on the cross, or we see a picture of Jesus on the cross, we can envision ourselves with him on the cross dying in order that, and then reading on in verse four, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's this inclusion into the life of Christ. It's like we're being absorbed into his life. Which saying that might sound a little bit scary right now for some of you because some of you maybe have had human relationships where you have felt smothered. You felt like somebody was trying to absorb you into their life. And you're like, I don't want any part of that because that person was trying to absorb you into their life for their own gain and their own benefit. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus invites you to be absorbed into his life so you can really live. So you can be, instead of constrained, you can be released to be who he made you to be. Joseph Thayer is a dictionary writer. He said this, in the death of Christ, our former corruption and wickedness has been slain and buried in Christ's tomb. And now, our intimate fellowship with his return to life will show itself in a new life consecrated to God. A new life set apart, dedicated, looking to, in other words, our lives should look radically different after we come to faith in Christ. Read, start at verse five. If we have been united, with Christ in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So that sin, that thing that you thought of earlier, that compulsion, whatever that is, that you have not been able to get Past. Before Christ, you had no control over that. But in Christ, it has no control over you. Remember the question that Paul started out with today in verse one. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is no, of course not. We're dead to sin. How can we continue in it? Any longer, we, we can say, what we, you and I can say now is, sin, I'm dead to you. Because I am in Christ, whatever that sin is that you are predisposed, and we all have them, I, I'm dead to you. You know, we, we, we say the phrase now, you know, that person's dead to me. So-and-so's dead to me, right? And what we mean by that is, I don't wanna have anything to do with them, I'm, I'm done with them not interested in interacting with them anymore, not interested in them having any influence in my life, not spending any time, energy, resources on that person. I'm I'm dead. They're they're dead to me. What Paul is telling us is to say to the sin in our lives, I'm dead to you. So there's a great illustration of this that I heard a, a previous senior pastor of Grace Point, Dave Ritter, share at a funeral. This was several years ago. And he was talking actually about Romans chapter six. And we had all gone through the visitation. We had seen the person who was deceased in their casket. And so when Dave gave this illustration, it was like really powerful because he said, imagine if that person who died in their life had a terrible addiction to alcohol to the point where like they could drive past a liquor store. They they had to stop and get something. They were so controlled by it. Dave said, imagine if right now I took a bottle of that person's favorite brandy or whatever and waved it under his nose, what would happen? Nothing, nothing would happen. And the liquor hasn't lost any of its potency, but that person is dead to the influence of the liquor. This is what Paul says has happened to you and me. Whatever that temptation is in your life, it's not lost any of its potency, but you've changed. And now we can affirm the truth and the reality because I'm in Christ, addiction, I'm dead to you. Lust, I'm dead to you. Anger, I'm dead to you. You don't control me anymore. Paul wants to be clear that after we come into relationship with Christ, with Christ, our life will look radically different. So imagine, imagine that Jesus comes upon a, a dead tree. Not, it's not sick, it's not weak, it's, it's dead. There's like no life to it anymore. Jesus comes upon a dead tree, and he speaks over the dead tree and says, return to life. We would expect if that tree comes to life again, to see some signs of life, right? We would expect to see some green leaves. Maybe it's a flowering tree, so we would expect to see a flower. Or if it's a fruit tree, we'd expect to see some fruit. If we came back to that tree uh, a month later, or a year later, and it still looks dead, we would probably conclude, it is still dead. If Jesus has brought new life, we should expect to see evidence of that life. So I'm gonna go on a little sidebar here because this is so relevant, but I got a question on this a few weeks ago. When we were talking about uh, Abraham in Romans chapter four, we'll put these verses up on on the screen, We read this, Romans chapter four. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. If you were here for for that message, we, we were talking about, actually Jeremy gave that message, and we were talking about the fact that God does not call us to earn our salvation, and earn our standing of being right with him by our works. So that's what that chapter is all about. But this person came up to me after after one of those messages from chapter four and asked the question, what about James two? And so here's James two, 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Whoa, Sparky, that sounds like a contradiction. Like, how does that go together? How can that, wait, Paul said, we're not saved by works, it's by faith alone, and now James says it's by works and not by faith alone. Well, how does that work? Okay, listen carefully. This is where context is so, so vital and important. I had a professor in seminary said the context of every verse is 66 books. Okay, so don't try to rip a verse out And you can make verses say whatever you want them to say unless you read what's all around them. So what else does James say? He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. What James is doing is he is countering the idea that our faith is merely an intellectual exercise and that we can say we believe something, but our actions and our life stays the same. That's, that's what James is out to prove. There's no contradiction here, and it's actually interesting, I don't have time to do this, but you can go back and read James to yourself and see that he uses Abraham as an example. He uses the same verse that, wrote, that Paul does in Romans. There's no contradiction here. And here's how James concludes, he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the the, the works are an evidence of the faith. The works are not, they don't come before the faith, I'll work and then God will give me faith somehow. It's not about that, it's about putting your faith in Christ and the works are the evidence. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter six. Real faith will result in works. Martin Luther said it this way, We're saved, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is not alone. It'll be accompanied by works and by life. <laughs> so, end sidebar, back to Romans six. We've been talking a lot about death. Now let's, let's end on a note of life here, verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is good news right here. You gotta, gotta pause on that. Death no longer has dominion. Here's what that means. No, death no longer has dominion over Christ. That means he cannot die again. So, you and I, all, all we know in our experience is that we are subject to death. It's going to come for us one day. We are at its mercy. It could come today. We, that's all we know. It is impossible for us to even wrap our heads around what would it look like to be truly immortal, to, to, to not be able to die. That's what Jesus has achieved. He was the first to achieve it, by the way beyond Lazarus, beyond other people in the New Testament who were raised from the dead, because you know what? They were raised from the dead, and they died again. If that were not the case, then we would have Lazarus available today, and we could bring him in for an interview, and that would be so cool to do that. And we would, he would probably tell us the story and be like, yeah, I was dead, I was with God, and then all of a sudden I was back on earth, and I'm like, Jesus, really? Really, why'd you have to, mess, why'd you have to bring me back, you know? But so he came back, And then he died again, as was the case with every one of those people, until Jesus. Jesus came back to life, was truly resurrected. The others were revived temporarily. Jesus was resurrected and he's the first of many. He is the first of all who put their trust in him and one day you and I will stand incorruptible, unable to die again, wow. If that doesn't get your blood going, man, that's good. Christ, death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. So death no longer has mastery over him either. And so, with all of this, Paul is now, he's now gonna top off all of this with the first command in the letter to the Romans. Everything up until now has been, he's describing things, he's, you know, encouraging things, but now he's gonna give us a direct command, and this is the first, in verse 11. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. His first command is about how we think about ourselves. You are to consider yourselves. It's the same word that we encountered in chapter four when it said over and over again that it would be counted to us as righteousness. Faith is counted to us as righteousness. It's the same word, it's an accounting word. It means to credit to someone's account. So we have it credited to our account that we're dead to sin and we're alive to Christ. And so he says we are to think That way, this is not just like pretend, this is like actually what has happened. When Jesus speaks over something to bring it back to life, it comes back to life, and we see evidence of that, and it's never the same again. He, He made a statement, he's been making all these statements in chapter six, we died to sin, How can we still live in it? We were buried with him. He says, now you need to start thinking that way. This is the reality. You need to think in line with reality. In Christ, we're not dead in sin, but we're dead to sin. Please, Please understand, this is not wishful thinking. This is not positive thinking. This is not manifesting thinking, where I think something hard enough so that it will come to be. This is truth thinking. This is God said this, so it's true. And I'm gonna start thinking this way. I'm gonna start considering myself this way. Over and above my experience, over and above how I feel, God, what God says is the reality. And so we must start thinking that way. Next week, there will be more commands, more imperatives that talk more about how to put, how how do we live this out? But it starts with the way we think. And the reason that so many of your efforts to try to change yourself and to get better, the reason they have failed over the long term is one of two reasons. First of all, you, you may not have even addressed how you think at all, and you may have have just been like, I'm I'm just gonna try to gut it out by willpower, I'm just gonna do it differently, and you didn't try to change your mind at all. That doesn't work. Or you've tried to change the way you think, but you did it with human wisdom and not with God's truth. And so your, your change will not last if you're doing it based on something that you read in a magazine or heard on a morning show, God help you. Please go by what God says and align your thinking with that. And then Romans 1.17, that's the path to live. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. So this week, when you encounter that familiar temptation, the the one that takes you out all the time, you, you have a new response Now, okay, I want you to talk to the temptation, and here's what you're gonna say. Because I'm in Christ, fill in the blank, I'm dead to you. Pride, I'm dead to you. Ego, I'm dead to you. Addiction, I'm dead to you. Lust, I'm I'm dead to you. Greed, I'm, I'm dead to you. Whatever you fill in that blank with, the blank is big enough to hold that because Jesus is big enough to be bigger than that. And then next week, we're gonna talk about more about how to live into that. What does this look like as we work, work it out in our lives? What we're really learning here is how to kill off what is killing you. So I hope you'll engage with God in that process. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, and we're gonna skip the last song, by the way. But anyway, you can come and play if you want to. But anyway, um, I ran along here. So Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you have overcome death, that you have overcome sin, and that there is nothing now in our lives that can control us when we lose ourselves into your life, into the life of Christ, when we are baptized into your life. Lord, Some of us are just at the beginning of experiencing that. Lord, would you help us to persevere in that, to experience more and more life in you, that that what is killing us, what is choking us on the inside, thank you, Jesus, that you have made it possible for that to be put to death. And beginning to experience that is really just beginning to, to believe and to trust and to affirm that what you have said about that is true that we are now dead to that. Lord, would you empower someone this morning to, to make that affirmation in the coming week and may they begin to experience life in you that they never have before, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.